This is the Wellsprings Word. Hey everybody, how's it going? Coming to you on the Wellsprings Word here today, we want to talk about revival a little bit. Um, Psalms chapter 85 verse 4 says, Now restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. Will you be angry with us always? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Powerful, powerful prayers. Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. It's It's been interesting. Uh, many have followed um, the goings-ons at the Asbury University where their chapel service um, just was extended out, just kept going and going because, uh, from what I understand from the eyewitnesses on the ground at least, the kids just didn't want to leave. I know some would object to me calling them kids, they're college students, they're young adults, and then when you reach my age, they uh, it's still like kids. <laughs> so I don't mean anything bad by that. The young people simply didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay. Chapel service ended. They weren't done. They weren't done praying. They weren't done singing. They had an appetite for there to be more. Uh, my understanding of the flow of that was very simple, actually. They would sing They would pray, somebody else would share the scripture, they would share testimonies, and they would do it all again. And they just simply weren't satisfied to be done. They had found something. One um, gentleman that I was listening to describe it, he just said it was like the love of God was on display. And I thought of that, and it's why I read that verse from the psalm there, show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. One guy, he said that's what it felt like, was God's love was just enveloping all the people, and they were so so impacted by that that they wanted to just stay and just revel in that and soak that up. And so you had a situation where you had people falling more in love with the presence of God and being with the Lord then their schedule and the other things that they wanted to do. They were more interested in praying than eating. They were more interested in singing um, than uh, going to see the movies or, or whatever. It was just a shifting of priorities. And all of a sudden, because um, the church culture in America in particular is just watching, just ear to the ground almost for anything, immediately it was the revival in Asbury. And then uh, a couple days later, somebody else started calling it the the awakening in Asbury, and somebody else started calling it uh, the Asbury outpouring. And we, we always have this collection of people that as they make their commentary, um, then they want to kind of Uh, I guess, kind of kick the football back and forth, if you will. Well, is it a revival? No, I think it's a renewal. 
Is it a renewal? I don't know about that. Maybe it's an outpouring. Is it an outpouring? I don't know. I think it's an awakening. Um, and everybody starts to kind of have those various um, debates. In this scripture, God makes it pretty simple, I think, because as we're looking at the prayer that this is being offered up here, the people are in trouble, and so he says, restore us again. He sees what he believes is the the anger and the judgment of the Lord upon the land because of their sins. So he says, put aside your anger against us. Then he even asks the question, will you be angry with us always? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? So at the time when this was uttered, at the time when this psalm was written, it's the opposite of the blessing, if you will, of the Lord upon the land. He sees at, uh, wrath and, and anger and trouble everywhere, and that's what he's praying about when he says, won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? So it's going to sound simple, but what's in my heart is to just kind of do a series of things on revival real quick with this podcast thing to take a minute and explore this. What is a revival? Million dollar question, right? If you go across the body of Christ, you get all these different answers. Well, it's a revival if it goes a certain length of time. It's a revival if people are repenting and coming to faith in Christ. If there's not new conversions, uh, it's not a revival, it's a renewal. If it's just the saints showing up and leaving refreshed, it's a renewal. If it's uh, you know, everyone wants to kind of debate all of these things. Is it a revival or not? Well, here's the cool part. I wasn't in Asbury, so I don't know for sure. But let's work it from the other direction for a minute. Rather than something subjective, like, hey, how do we feel in a particular environment? Is it a revival or it's not a revival or whatever? What does the word revive mean? And it literally means to take something that was dead or asleep and awaken it again. Well, even just the definition then of revive means that if you had a revival and you have awakening, you're actually saying the same thing. So let's establish that, that as people are, are ripping back and forth and debating these terms, if you revive me when you're done, I'm awake. So if I'm sleeping and you come and you shake me out of my slumber, you awakened me, you also revived me. And how do we know? We know if we go from being asleep to being awake, or more dramatically, going from dead to being awake or alive when someone's revived. When you think about it in a medical term, somebody falls into unconsciousness, they fall into a stupor, and we revive them. It just, we know, how do we know? How do we know that they're revived? When we look at them and they're looking back at us, when we speak to them and they speak back to us, when we say, okay, let's stand up again and they can stand up, that's what reviving is. That's what awakening is. So a better question would be, in these environments where people are talking about revival, you know, Lord, revive us again so your people can rejoice in you. Stand us back up in a place of rejoicing. So all you'd really have to do is go to someplace like Asbury or anybody else, anywhere else that they're doing that, and walk up to any particular person 
and say, hey, are you awake now and you were asleep before? Are you alive now and you were dead before? If they say yes, if they give some evidence to the fact that they are now awake and before the evidence in their life would have suggested that they were asleep or spiritually dead even, and then now the evidence in their life is that they are awakened, that they are alive in Christ, then you are having personal revival. If you're having that on a corporate scale, if this is becoming the norm, if this is becoming the mark of a particular gathering, that more and more people are coming in asleep and leaving awake or showing up to the meeting spiritually dead and then they are spiritually alive in Christ by the time they leave, then you are having revival. You are having awakening. And so when we look at these things, I don't think it's so important that we really rip back and forth about what something is called. I mean, we have to recognize we're living in a day and an hour when all anybody wants to do is argue about these things. I saw a whole post this week, how ridiculous. They weren't using the right version of the Bible in Asbury. When they get up to quote the scriptures, they're not doing it right. The songs that they're singing aren't the right songs. The way they're doing it, there's always going to be critics. There's always going to be people that are sitting back and are willing to rip away at anything that's happening, good or bad. I think it does us good to remember that Jesus, according to the book of Acts, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him, and yet Jesus' list of critics was large. Religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, Romans, business people, backslidden Jews. There was always a crowd of people complaining about what Jesus was doing, and yet the summation of it in the 10th of Acts is that he was simply doing good and going about healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So it causes you and me to know you can be on a mission for Jesus doing the exact right thing, and you are still going to have criticism. So all of the people who are criticizing what was happening in Asbury, that actually means nothing to me. Everything God has ever done, there was always religious people willing to criticize it. So you silence the critics for a minute, and you'd have to just talk to people who were there to say, hey, did you leave awakened? Did you leave alive? And that would be the determining factor, really, about whether revival is happening. Are people coming alive? If they are, then that's, then that's revival. Here's the cool thing. That's always God because he's the giver of life, right? We don't have to wonder. One of the things that goes on so oftentimes now when people want to get critical is anything that they don't like is all of a sudden um, the devil. You know, it's all of a sudden uh, a destructive dark spirit. If they don't like it, they can find... Um, you know, they can find it's got to be a compromise. It's got to be demonic. It's got to be, you know, a danger to your soul. They just can hurl that at anything they decide that they don't like. But here's the funny thing about the scripture. The scripture actually keeps things pretty simple. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. So the devil isn't into bringing life. 
the dark forces of Lucifer and the fallen angels, they don't make things live. They come to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus taught that. It's plain throughout the scripture. God is the author of life. The enemy seeks to kill and steal and destroy. So if you have an environment where people are coming alive, where people are awakening, that is most certainly more a work of God than anything else. And we need to just be more careful, I think, to stand back and say, hey, it's not for me. God didn't call me to police the body of Christ and make sure that every gathering met some checklist in my religious mind. That's not my calling. My calling is to love. My calling is to pray. My calling is to believe the best. My calling is to have true discernment. And true discernment has been hijacked in the body of Christ. True discernment is not sitting around with a critical spirit figuring out what's wrong with everything. True discernment is identifying, hey, I think I see the life of God there. I think I see the hand of Jesus there. Hey, I think I see something consistent with the moving of the kingdom of God in what's happening in that life. It's about discerning what God's doing, not just sitting around figuring out what's wrong with everything that you don't like. That's not discernment. That's just having a critical spirit. And so when I looked at what I saw, I saw a room full of people who are worshiping Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. I saw a room full of people who were uh, showing uh, love and compassion and acceptance for one another. There was unity there, which is throughout Scripture taught to be something that pleases the Lord. I saw people reading God's Word and embracing it as God's Word. I saw people who were repenting of their sin because they were acknowledging God's way is right and my way is not, and they're turning around. All of these things point to a work of God there in the chapel at Asbury. I would call it a revival again because to me it's simple. If people were wandering in there asleep and they were walking away awake, if they were being brought there by a friend and they were dead spiritually and then they left, they were alive in Christ, well then that's revival, that's awakening, that's something moving there in that place. Now it makes for an interesting topic because um, you know most of the time, Unfortunately, in our, in our church cultures, particularly here in the West, you have a constant, like this tug of war, because people want to try to create something like that. Most of our church environments now are just, you know, remarkably manipulative, if you think about it. Like, we plan it all, we move people with the music, we try to focus on perfect production and perfect lighting and perfect everything, and we try to make sure that we can really help people have some kind of feeling or have some kind of enthusiastic response to what we're doing because we feel like that enthusiasm will cause more people to come or whatever. One of the things that I loved that I heard from an eyewitness to the very beginning of this Asbury revival was the fact that in the beginning there was just no production to it. There was no push. There was no manipulation. A whole bunch of kids just didn't want to leave when chapel was over and they stayed. And some of the ones that left went to class and came back and were like, wow, why are those guys still in there? And when they came in, they started to pray and sing again. And it just kind of grew 
out of hunger and out of appetite. And the whole time, I mean, there was never words on a screen. They never dimmed the lights. They never brought in a bigger band. They never brought in a different preacher that was famous or any of that stuff. They were just seeking after God. And there's something so organic, I guess, would be the best word. There's something so familiar about that. That's just so um, sincere and simple and sweet. And would to God that we would see that break out in all of our congregations. I mean, wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that just be tremendous if in every church in America on a Sunday morning the lights could be on, the screens could be off, the band could be pared down to one dude with an acoustic guitar or, or and, and one person playing a piano like at Asbury, and then have the people sing for two hours and not be willing to quit, have the have the teaching go on and have the people not be willing to leave, have a moment of prayer at the end, and rather than everybody trying to figure out how to get to lunch, everybody wants to stay because they're feasting on the presence of the Lord rather than just trying to figure out how to satisfy their flesh with one more big pile of calories, right? Like, if that happened everywhere, we should rejoice for that. We should long for that. We should pray for that. We should embrace it. We should say, God, please, come and bring revival like that to every corner. I believe throughout the scripture we see a pattern that when God is particularly good to one location, his actual motivation is to create jealousy so that the others of his family and his kingdom will seek out that expression. Well, so what do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, you see this example where the Ark of the Covenant was the, uh, was the, the symbol, if you will, of the presence of God. And we don't, you guys are familiar with the story. They, the Ark gets captured, they recapture it, they decide to bring it on a cart back to the city, um, there's the story where the oxen stumbles, the ark starts to fall, a guy reaches out to steady it, he gets killed there in the presence of the Lord, David begins to mourn and weep, and so it says that they took the ark to the house of this guy named Obed-Edom, and David went on home and was, was kind of just mad, just kind of ticked off about the whole thing. And then word comes back to David, hey, you know, because the ark is over there, the blessing of God is falling on the house of Obed-Edom because the presence of the Lord is there. And David is aroused then, his appetite, his jealousy for that blessing is aroused. And then the Bible says he reread the scriptures, figured out what he did wrong, and figured out how to have the priests and go get the ark and bring it back to the city. And it was all driven by, I don't want to hear about the blessing just being over there. I want to figure out how to get that blessing over here. And of course, in this context, we're not talking about blessings like money and cash and cars and coveting somebody's Learjet, but the blessing of God's kingdom, his presence, his, 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 uh, his glory, if you will, being in a place and the life it brings and the joy it brings and the deliverance that it brings, that's the blessing we're talking about. And so we see David get hungry for it and say, well, hey, I want it over here. And I really believe that's what the Lord does when he finds these flashpoints or these areas where the kingdom just breaks through so powerfully like it appeared to in Asbury. It's just to make the rest of us look and go, wow, I want that here. 
you know, were funny because everybody started doing the pilgrimage thing. You know, the whole town over there where the university has just got overwhelmed by people traveling to go there to experience it there. And that's really not the point. When God's blessing lands on a house, it's so that all of God's people in the other houses can be awakened themselves to what they're lacking in that area and say, oh God, can we have that blessing here? Get back in the word and find out what's the pathway that brings that blessing back over here. If you want to do a little homework, you start finding that even in the New Testament, when Paul was talking about how powerfully God was moving among the Gentiles. He writes and he says, and look, this goodness to the Gentiles was intended to create jealousy among the Jews so that they would want to have the same thing happening for them that they see happening in the life of these Gentiles that are coming to Christ and being so powerfully impacted. So what is a revival when God is awakening people? And why does it happen in one specific spot? Because the Lord chooses and he busts through in a place and it's usually a place of appetite and it's usually a place of prayer. And he does it so that around it, all of us look and go, hey, wait a minute, they sing two hours, we sing 20 minutes. They sing with the lights on, we have to do mood lighting and turn everything off. They hear the preaching of the word and repent for two hours. Our, at our place, we teach the word of God and nobody even notices. They confess their sin openly because they're clearly convicted by the Holy Spirit. Hey, I look closer to home. Nobody's convicted about anything, and so they keep all their secret sins, and they're quite comfortable with it. And I see the difference. I see the disconnect between when the kingdom of God is falling and what's happening in my own place, and I lift my eyes to heaven and I go, Oh God, I want that kingdom falling here. It's localized to create appetite. It's God showing, Hey, I'm willing to do this. Do you want it? And what the rest of us need to do is say, Yes, Lord. We would love for you to do that here. I don't need to drive to Kentucky, right? I need the kingdom falling here. So that's the nature of revival in a nutshell. This is very short and very to the point. That's the nature of revival in a nutshell. Um, I actually had a member of our church here asked me to start talking more about this and maybe even sharing some stories because I've been deeply impacted by outpourings of God since the since the middle 90s and I've seen a lot of things and God's goodness on display in a lot of places and it's I've learned a lot I've seen a lot I've hungered a lot and thirsted a lot and and all of that but I want to encourage you when you see something I mean, the last statistic I was given is that these ongoing chapel prayer meeting type things, there's now it's now pouring out on something like 21 or 22 different college campuses across the nation. Well, go Jesus. That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. It's the universities where they tried to get God totally out of the picture. So for God to be moving in power on the universities is fantastic. All Christians should be rejoicing at that. But when we look at it over there, 
before anybody criticizes it, we need to recognize God is doing something. I may not be able to explain it all, but there's too much life, too much repentance, and too many biblical virtues there for it to be a work of the devil. So God is doing something. God, would you do it here? It's designed to create appetite. So I want to encourage you, no matter where you go to church, no matter what you do, have a hungry heart and begin to say, God, would you revive us again so that your people can rejoice in you? Would you move here till we can't get enough? Would you move here till we want more and more and more? Would you move here till we can't sing long enough, we can't pray long enough, we can't confess deep enough because we're just being pulled deeper and deeper and deeper, closer to your heart, closer to the center of who you are, closer to the heartbeat of heaven and further away from the appetite of our own flesh and our own carnal desires. God, would you revive us so that we can rejoice in you again? Seek God for revival for yourself. God, if there's anything sleepy in me, wake it up. If there's anything dead in me, wake it up. If you want to pray for your church, your pastor, the people around you, Lord, wake us up. If there's any aspect where we're sleeping, wake us up, stir us up. If there's any part of us that's supposed to be alive and instead it's dead, wake it up, resurrect it, stand it up again, revive us that we might rejoice in you again. And so we'll be back to talk more about revival in the days and the weeks to come. What is a revival? It's when God's waking people up. And so if any part of you is asleep, Holy Spirit, come and wake us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Take care. Thanks again for stopping by. If you'd like any more info about us, feel free to swing by wellsprings.church. Have a blessed day.